You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me. Every week, more terror attacks, more Jews murdered in the land of Israel. I want to talk about a particular one that happened last week. A Jewish father and son were murdered as they were visiting the Arab village of Khawara in Samaria. And we've been talking a lot about Khawara. It's a village about two minutes away from me here in Tapuach. We all have to go through Khawara in order to get to our schools, to get to Yitzhar and Har Brachar and Alal Moray and Itamar. These are all settlements near Shechem, what we call the Gavahar, the mountain ridge settlements. And all those settlements have to go through Khawara to get to Jerusalem, to get to Tel Aviv, wherever they have to go. Those settlements can't avoid going through Khawara just to start their day. The Israeli authorities are working vigorously on a Kfish Okef Khawara, a bypass Khawara road. It'll probably be ready pretty soon. You see them working on it like crazy. As the attacks grow, they're trying to get it done faster and faster. And this road, as its name says, is to bypass Khawara. That way you don't have to see it. You don't have to look at it. And then you can imagine that the Arabs aren't there anymore. So on one end, it's Kfish Okef Khawara, the bypass Khawara road. But it could also be termed the bypass reality road. You are okefing, you are bypassing the reality. You don't want to see it. You don't want to know it. It's like a little kid who covers his eyes. He doesn't see anything. And so he thinks nobody sees him. We're bypassing the problem with these bypass roads. And that way we don't have to see the cancer growing before our eyes. But getting back to this attack on the Israeli father and son who were murdered in Khawara, an article ran, I think it was in Arut Sheva, and they did a little research why do Israelis shop in Palestinian Arab villages? That's the title of the article. And they did some research about the price gaps between an Arab village and if you bought the same item in central Israel. And of course, it's significantly lower. You go to Khawara to buy stuff. If you go to Khawara or any other Arab village to buy things, of course, it's much, much cheaper there. And I'll just read a sentence or two from the article. According to Ynet, a set of new tires for a car in Khawara would set you back only about 600 shekels. While in central Israel, you buy a set of tires, it'll cost you anywhere from 1,000 to 2,400 shekels. So yeah, it's a lot cheaper. You could save a lot of money buying in Khawara. You might not come out alive, but I guess that's a chance you got to take, right? Now, this has been going on for a long time. I live in the heart of Samaria in Tapuach, and the Chotzei Shomron Highway, Highway number five, runs from Tapuach all the way to Tel Aviv. And today it's a newer road, but many years ago, the five road also went through some Arab villages. And you would see, every time you went through that village, Israelis, Jews, would drive in from Tel Aviv, Petach Tikva, all those areas, to these Arab villages in Samaria to buy furniture. You know, it's not that far from Petach Tikva or Tel Aviv to enter the heart of Samaria. It's like 25 minutes we're talking here. I mean, you'd think it's a different planet, you know, Tel Aviv from Yehuda and Shamron, but it's not. Israel's a small country. And so from Petach Tikva or Tel Aviv to Tapuach, it's like 30 minutes. And to Ariel, it's 20 minutes. So it's tempting for some people to go into these villages and buy everything at half price. Anyway, you have all these furniture stores along the road and you'd see them load up their cars with nice new sofas and couches and put it on their roof racks probably a third of the price of what it would cost in central Israel. You'd see so many yellow license plates of Israelis in these Arab stores. 
and I was told that on Shabbat, you can't even drive through there. There's traffic jams because of the Israelis from central Israel are traveling on Shabbat to these villages, buying couches and chairs and whatever they're selling in these Arab towns. So this Israeli father and son who were murdered a week before this past Shabbat, they parked their car in a car wash and then they ran errands in the town, errands in Khawara. And when the Arab terrorist identified that they speak in Hebrew, he knew they were Jewish, he fired five bullets at them point blank. And I wanted to talk about this topic of buying from Arabs and the importance of Avodah Ivrit, of buying from Jews. Avodah Ivrit means Hebrew labor because it's not just secular Jews from Tel Aviv who are going into Arab villages on Shabbat and buying from them. We're talking about most of the religious settlements here. They all use Arab labor to build their houses, to build their schools. And by doing so, they're strengthening the enemy. They're giving Parnassah to the enemy. They're giving him a hold onto the land. You know, it's true that if you go through the Jewish settlements, everybody will brag, look at how a settlement has grown. It's so much bigger than it used to be. We're making such progress. Yeah, that may be true, but look over at the Arab village next to you. It's grown just as much as your Jewish village. You know why? Because the Arabs are building our houses, they're getting rich, and they're expanding their neighborhoods and their communities. So what have you gained? If your whole criteria for Yeshuvah Aretz, for settling the land, is to have more houses and more Jews living out here, what have you gained if the Arabs are also expanding their communities? So by using Arab labor all the time, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot, and worse, we're getting ourselves shot in the head because it's downright dangerous. How many Jews have been murdered in their towns, in the settlements, because Arabs were there? They were working in those settlements. Just a couple of weeks ago, a Jew from Ma'aleadumim was killed by an Arab worker there. It happens all the time. You're letting them into your settlement. They're checking you out. They know where you live. If they're not the terrorists, their friends are or their family is, and they give them modi'in. They're getting information on us by being here. So this is very dangerous, letting Arabs build our houses. And besides that, it's not even normal. We can't build up Israel through foreign labor, through Arab labor. That's not normal. What was Zionism all about in the first place? Wasn't Zionism about building the land, using our hands, picking up the bricks? That's how the early Zionists were. We didn't build this country with Arab labor. All the early communities were built with Jewish hands. When the Arabs do all the construction work and all the heavy work and we're just in high tech or learning yeshiva all day, they're becoming physically stronger than we are. If you look at the Arab people in Israel, you know, I just sit on the light train in Jerusalem and I look at them, they're physically stronger than we are. We're building a master race because they're doing the physical labor and getting stronger for it. And we're sitting behind desks becoming nebishes. Now, many will say, well, there just isn't enough Jewish labor. I want to use Avodah Jewish labor, Hebrew labor, but there isn't any. But that's not true. There's a tremendous awakening of Avodah today. There are many, many Jewish companies today with Jewish workers, Avodah If you're willing to pay a little bit more, if you're willing to give Parnassah to a Jew and not to the enemy, you can hire Jews to do the work for you. Yeah, you may have to pay a little bit more. So maybe when you build your house, you can make it a little bit smaller just to hire Jews. Isn't it worth it? And besides, some mitzvot, they're more expensive, like an etrog. That's an expensive mitzvah. So was Avodah Ivrit. It's an expensive mitzvah, but boy, is it worth it. First of all, you're giving Parnassah to a Jew. Secondly, in a way, it kind of expels your enemy from you. Because if a Jew doesn't patronize Arab stores, 
and their restaurants and their shops and their businesses. And when the Arab businesses don't flourish and you insist on taking Jewish contractors that hire only Jews, maybe they'll find someplace else to settle. It's just like in the United States where you have all these illegal aliens. If people stopped hiring them all the time, that would take away their incentive. But because they know they can find work and bring money back to Guatemala and Mexico and Colombia, they're going to keep coming in. You have to take away their incentive. So Avadai Ivri, using Jewish labor, makes sense from a very practical point of view. But now I want to give the Torah perspective of it, because this is a Torah issue as well. It's even an halachic issue, an issue of Jewish law. If you look at the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, all those verses there, especially verse 14, talks about buying from fellow Jews. The word they use in Hebrew is amitecha or reecha. You buy from your fellow Jew. Now, there are parameters for everything. You don't have to buy from a Jew. Let's say the price of the Jewish merchant is 16% higher than the price of the non-Jew. At that point, you don't have to buy from the Jew. You can buy from a non-Jew if there's a gap of 16% in price. Now, that's the dry halacha. But in this case, what's going on in Israel? We're not talking about just a non-Jew. We're talking about an enemy, a national enemy that started five wars with us, that hates us, that celebrates every terror attack against Jews. So a 16% price gap, that's true if you want to hire a Chinaman or a Gentile Russian or a Gentile from Taiwan. And you have that in Israel. You have foreign workers. That's okay. But concerning the Arab, he's your enemy. You're financing terror because the Arabs are one big family. If that particular worker himself isn't a terrorist, you know his cousin is and his friend is. There are inner circles and outer circles of terror. And by supporting them financially, you're supporting terror indirectly. And a lot has been written about this from a Torah perspective. And Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg says like this, He says, one of the most important mitzvahs of this generation is supporting Hebrew or Jewish labor. And he lists the reasons, and I just want to give some of them. It says, It says that giving tzedakah, charity, is a great thing, and it brings the redemption closer. And the greatest charity you can give is to give that person parnasa. You help him earn a living. That's real charity. You're not throwing a dime at some bum, but you're boosting this guy up so he can support himself and his family. You're being a partner to his success and his success in raising his family. And we Jews are all aruvim We're guarantors for one another. You show that by hiring a fellow Jew. I just did some heavy renovations on my house over the last year. And I used all Jewish labor. And you know, it was a pleasure to see the guys working in my house with their earlocks and their keepers, these young guys working hard. And you have to pay anyway. And you're paying more, but you're paying for something good. You're helping these young kids, a lot of them just got married, support themselves. These kids all happen to be settlers themselves, many on hilltops. You're supporting those hilltops by using Avodah You're not just doing renovations. You're Mechazek Eretz Israel. You're strengthening our hold onto the land. And of course, by hiring Arabs, you're doing the very opposite. And so Avodah Ivrit, it really is the essence of Havat Yisrael, of caring about others and not just worrying about your pocket. And so if we want to be a normal people, we have to build our land ourselves. We don't want to rely on foreign labor, especially Arabs, to build our land. And like I said, there's an awakening in this entire area of Avodah Ivrit. There's an organization that gives a listing of every Jewish company in every field whether it's a musach, a garage to fix your car, a plumber, an electrician, everything. 
There's Jewish labor there if you want it, if you want to really uphold another Jew. And so we see that practically, Avodayavrit, it really is pikuch nefesh. It's dangerous to hire Arabs to be in our yeshuv next to our children. And by providing parnasa, we're giving them a foothold into our land. But on a spiritual level and a Torah level, hiring Jews is also the way to go. It energizes us and it gives a real feeling of brotherhood between us as a people, that we worry about each other and we're not just looking to save a buck. So we'll go to the nearest Arab, even though he's an enemy, but he's a lot cheaper and he'll do the work instead. And so avodah ivrit, using Hebrew labor for us, that should be a no-brainer. And so there's a lot of things you can do. When you go into a restaurant to eat, ask the balabayat there, do you have Arab workers there? Are they working in your kitchen? You know how many stories there are of Arab workers in the back rooms, in the kitchens, spitting in our food? The wife of Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, Zichrol Avracha, talked about how in Angels, the big bakery, Arabs would spit into the food. And there's a whole bunch of other stories. I don't want to gross you out, but if you're not going to patronize Jewish establishments because of brotherhood and all the things I said, at least do it for practical reasons, that you don't know what's in that food. The Arab enemy has many ways to try to sabotage the Jewish state, and that's one of them. Okay, now that we've fired all the Arabs and we've hired all the Jews, I want to talk about our Parsha, Parsha Kitetzeh, that we read a couple of days ago. When you go to war on your enemy, that's how it opens up. Now, 90% of the drushes you hear on Shabbat, when they bring this verse down to open up Parsha, they'll talk about the enemy being the Yetzirah, your evil inclination. You go to war against your enemy. Who's your enemy? Your Yetzirah. And of course, there's a source for that. But that's, you know, allegorical. The simple understanding of the verse is when you go to war on your enemy, you're talking about a real physical enemy. That's the pshat. That's the simple understanding of the verse. Why are we always running to the, to the vorts, you know, before understanding this pshat? Well, for something like this, it's obvious. When you're in the galut, in the exile for 2,000 years, and you're learning this verse, when you go to war on your enemy, if you learn the simple understanding of the verse, it's not really relevant because if you're sitting in Poland, you're not going to war on any enemies. You're not going to war against the Cossacks because there is no national enemy. There's no nationalism in the exile. So throughout the exile, we took these verses and we turned them you know, into vorts, into allegorical understandings. I don't know if that's the right word, allegorical, but you know, not the simple understanding. It's a drosha. But now that we're back in the land of Israel, hey, we can learn the pshat now. You go to war on your enemy. Yeah, we got lots of those. We can certainly relate now. All these verses about fighting wars become supremely relevant now. And how to fight a war, that's part of Jewish law. On the previous Shabbat, we also had the same verse, when you go to war on your enemy. And the rabbis ask, why does it say when you go to war on your enemy? Of course you go to war on your enemy. You don't go to war against your friends. So the word enemy is really superfluous. Just say when you go to war, this is what you have to do. Why on your enemy? So listen to what it says here in chapter 20, verse 1, what Rashi says, when you go to war on your enemy, Rashi says like this, you you should view them as enemies, and don't have mercy upon them, because they're not going to have mercy upon you. That's why it says when you go to war on your enemy, because they're your enemy. And if they win, God forbid, they're not going to have mercy on you. So don't have mercy on them. 
In order not to have mercy upon them, you have to put it in your head. What will they do to me if they win? Okay? That's what you have to be thinking. And that will give you the motivation to wipe them out. And on this verse, when you go to war on your enemy, the Ramban says, know that they're your enemy. Because, because with the mercy of fools, all justice is lost. So yeah, the mercy of fools. That is Jewish war ethics. It's not purity of arms. It's not dropping leaflets and all those other so-called Jewish ethics that people like to babble about. This is Jewish ethics. This is true Judaism. I'm reading Rashi. I'm reading the Ramban. When you go to war on your enemy, he's your enemy, for God's sake. He's not your friend. The problem is that Jews like to make Judaism somehow palatable, you know, for this era. So they think that pinpointing terrorists and dropping leaflets is a wonderful thing. It's a Jewish thing, but it's not. It's the mercy of fools. What a magnificent concept of the Ramban. The mercy of fools. All justice is lost. Isn't that in one sentence what you have today in Israel? The mercy of fools. And you know, when Jews talk about wars, it's always like, oh, the war we didn't want. Like we apologize for winning. We don't want the war, but it was forced upon us. And even the Orthodox National Zionist rabbis talk that way, that everything about going to war is bidievid. It's something you don't want, but you have to do it. The war we never wanted. Oh, how we love to say that. I'm not sure that's the Torah approach. The very fact that you have something called a Mohammed Rishut, a non-mandatory war that you can go in and conquer another nation that's a mitzvah like any other mitzvah. I don't know how much war is bedievid. It's something you're not supposed to want. Of course we want peace, but that's when the game is over. But in the meantime, until the game is over, we go to war and we try to win the war and it's not something we have to keep apologizing for or explaining to the world, well, they started and it's the war we didn't want. Or as Golda Meir said, and how can we forget her famous words, words that have to be entered into the Hall of Fame of Lunacy, when she said that she can forgive the Egyptian soldiers for killing our soldiers, but she can't forgive them for making us kill theirs. Yeah, that's a quote from Golda Meir. Aren't they making a movie about Golda Meir? Oh, Hollywood would love that quote. I bet that quote makes the movie. But one can see just from what's going on in the verses here, that war isn't something to shrink from or to apologize for or to be bedievid. It's something we embrace. Yeah, we embrace it because we know we have to do it. There's a mitzvah of conquering the land. That's why we have something called a melchemet mitzvah, an obligatory war, just like any other mitzvah. We embrace this too. We don't always have to explain to the world how nice we are and we were forced into these wars. We were forced into them. And it was a matter of self-defense and survival. But that doesn't mean you can't take the offensive too. Do you think that when Yovim and Surya, Davis captain of the host, went to war, his attitude was, gee, I'm so sorry I have to do this. It's been forced upon me. You're leaving me no choice. I have to go to war and kill people. You think Yovim was saying to the enemy as he was killing them, I'll never forgive you for making me kill you. But if you kill me, I can forgive you. No, I don't think that's what Yovim and Surya was thinking when he went out to war. No, he didn't say that because his commander-in-chief wasn't Golda Meir, it was Dovid Melech. Of course Yoav ben Surya went to war with Augusto. He wasn't going Bidievid. He was going Lithchatchila. He wasn't saying, oh, this is forced upon me, but what are you going to do? But I want to go back to what we read a couple of days ago in this week's Pasha, in Pasha Ki Tetzei, when you go to war on your enemy and the Lord delivers the enemy into your hands, 
And then you carry away captives. So you've won the war and you have all these captives you carry away. And then we get all these laws about what happens if you see a beautiful captive woman and you want to marry her. So I'll read it real quickly. And you see amongst the captives a very beautiful woman, the chashaktaba, and you desire her. And you want to take her for a wife. You shall take her into your house. She's got to shave her head. She's got to grow her nails long. And she has to wear plain clothes. And she will remain in your house. And she'll cry over her father and mother, who you killed, for a full month. And after all that, if you want to marry her, you can marry her. That's the famous halacha of the beautiful captive woman. Now, what's the Torah doing here? Why would a Jewish soldier, nice yeshiva boy, goes out to war, he suddenly has to marry this beautiful Goyesha woman. So why? Well, first of all, when you go to war, it's not your usual situation. You're killing, you're pillaging. If you want to win a war, you got to be an animal. You can't have mercy, like we just read. You got to be a beast. There's no such thing as nice wars. So because you're in that mode, right? You're in the beast mode, let's call it. And you've killed all the males. So you have all these available females walking around. And your passion could overcome you because, again, you're not in a usual restrained situation. You just want a war and you're feeling like King Kong. So instead of the Torah saying, no, no, don't marry her, the Torah says like this, you want to marry her? You can marry her. But this is what you have to do. Aleph Beit Gimel. That's what we just read. She has to grow a nail. She has, she has to change her dress. She has, she has to shave her head. She has to sit in your house for a month. The Torah is telling you to do all this, hoping you'll get turned off, that your passion will will fade. But what I really want to talk about here is this Rashi on this verse, when you go to warn your enemy and you take a captive woman. Rashi says like this, that this whole scenario we're talking about, it's a non-obligatory war, a mechemet reshut. How do we know? Because if it was a war over the land of Israel, an obligatory war, there's no such thing as captives. You wouldn't be taking away any captives. Why? Because if it was a Mohammed mitzvah you were fighting here, you're supposed to kill everybody. There are no captives in a Mohammed mitzvah. So this whole scenario with the beautiful captive woman, you're talking about a Mohammed reshut, not a war for the land of Israel. We're talking about a war, let's say, that Israel wants to conquer Canada because they want um, the natural resources there. That's a Mohammed Rashut. In such a situation, you don't have to kill everybody. And so there is a concept of captives. But again, in an obligatory war, you don't take captives, you kill them. So all these laws in the Parsha we read a couple of days ago about what to do with the beautiful captive woman, it doesn't apply to what's going on here with the Arabs. And that's for two reasons. Number one, the war with the Arabs is an obligatory war, not a Mohammed Rashut, but a Mohammed Mitzvah. And therefore, there's no such thing as captives. And secondly, there really is no such thing as a beautiful Arab woman that I've noticed. Now, I want to get back to the wording of this Rashi. This is very interesting. So listen carefully because you're going to have to follow me on this. Rashi is comparing a Mohammed Rashut, a non-mandatory war, to a Mohammed Mitzvah, which is an obligatory war. But his words are uneven because he says like this, in a Mohammed Rashut, in a non-mandatory war, this is the law. And in a war of the land of Israel, this is the law. Why does he word it that way? If you're going to compare them, say a Mohammed Rashut is like this, and a Mohammed Mitzvah is like this. Why is it that instead of Mohammed Mitzvah, he says a war for the land of Israel? 
or instead of using the word Mohammed Rashut, he'll say a war outside the land of Israel is like this. And a war in the land of Israel, you do this. Why is it so uneven? And the answer is that we're being taught Aladerich on the fly that a war for the land of Israel, that is a Mohammed mitzvah. So we get that extra limud. So it's written this way in order to teach us that any war over the land of Israel, that's a Mohammed mitzvah. Okay, that's the pilpul for today, but it's an important one. But looking at the big picture, we see again that we have all these halachas that pertain to our national life in the land of Israel. How to fight a war? What is Musar Melchama? What are war ethics? What's a Melchamet Rashut? What's a Melchamet Mitzvah? What's the difference in the laws between them? A mandatory war and a non-mandatory war? These are laws just like Shabbat. Maybe we don't learn them. Maybe we call it politics, but it's not. This is Torah Tchayim. You know, every once in a while, Rabbi Kahana would give his shiur to the public. And one time his shiur was about the status of the non-Jew in the land of Israel, halachically. And we hung up signs in the streets to advertise the shiur. And the name of the shiur was Helchot Aravim, the laws of Arabs. Just like you have Helchot Shabbat, the laws of Shabbat. This is Helchot Aravim. It's all Torah. It's not a political question. It's a Torah issue. Because the Torah enters all phases of one's life. The personal phase and the national one. And if you want to hear more about national life and how it used to be before the Jews went into the Gullahs and forgot how to fight, you can listen to my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. We're learning about King David. We're learning about King Saul. We learn about heavy hitters like Yov ben Surya and Avda ben Ner. In short, we learn how does a Jew conduct himself in the land of Israel when he's normal, when he's healthy, when he's going by this book, when he's living these verses, when you go out to war on your enemy, boy, did they know how to fight their enemies. And they all fought for the land of Israel. You know, even the wicked kings, Ahab, Yeravam and Navat, the worst kings of the 10 tribes, they all fought. There was no such thing as not fighting for the land of Israel. So that's one of the reasons we all have to learn Tanakh and get back to that. And Baruch Hashem, there is an awakening in Tanakh there's a couple of Tanakh podcasts I see in Hebrew every day, just like this Daf Yomi in Gemara. They have Daf Yomi in Tanakh. And that's a great thing because if you don't learn Tanakh, you can't be normal. If it's just Gemara, Gemara, Gemara all day, then it's like seeing the trees without the forest. The Tanakh, it's the forest. It's the big picture Judaism. It's Hashkafa. And you know, it's kind of sad because even my own kids, they're not that crazy about Tanakh, some of them, because they learned it in school. You know, when you learn it in school, boy, they make it so boring. I didn't know Tanakh could be boring. I don't know how you can make it boring, but somehow they manage the way they teach it a lot of times in high school. I mean, you have to really try to make Tanakh boring. In my podcast, all I do is read the verses and a couple of commentaries, and it comes to life. Just a simple understanding of it. You don't have to over-philosophize. It's kind of like what I said at the beginning of the show, when you go to warn your enemy, and you become more esoteric and philosophical about it. But you can just read the verses for what they are, along with the commentaries, and that's enough to make the Tanakh come alive. And so give it a chance. Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes, a podcast on Spotify and other uh, platforms. That's it for me today, and I'll be back next week, God willing, to do this all over again. <laughs>